Karen Wolfe is Professor of History at the College of William and Mary in the United States, where she's also the director of the Omohundra Institute of Early American History and Culture. She specializes in the study of women, family, and gender in the early modern Atlantic world, and she has published several books on women's and social history in the British North American colonies. In this episode, she discusses her latest research on lineage and genealogy, as well as the conceptual frameworks on which her research lies. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, I want to start by asking you about your ongoing project, um, Lineage, Genealogy, and the Politics of Connection in British America, 1680 to 1820. So what is this project about? So Lineage is a book uh, that I've been working on for a very long time, and I'm very happy that it's finally coming to conclusion. I hope it will be published next year. Um, But it's about genealogy as um, a cultural product. It's about genealogy, both in the way that it was produced by individuals and families, but also by what I would call state actors or institutional entities. So literally the state government, um, but also um, religious organizations, churches, for example. And what I'm interested in is looking at um, these kind of genealogical productions or reflections, and those are uh, family records, um, oral testimony of genealogical relationships, Um, laws that require genealogical production. I'm interested in all of this as it uh, relates to the way that um, inherited relationships are fundamental to British American society and culture. That's the short version, (laughs) anyway. What's the long version? (laughs) (laughs) Well, a longer version is um, that the book uh, looks at British America from in all of Uh, British North America, I don't actually look at the British Caribbean, but it's British North America from Maine to Georgia um, over the long 18th century. Um, And the book takes a kind of case study approach where um, in one chapter, for example, I'm looking at um, Quaker family businesses that are embedded in um, uh, mainland North America, Madeira, London, and and Wales, and talking about how genealogical um, practice among Quakers facilitates business relationships in fact lies at the at the root of uh, of business relationships but um each of the chapters really is about how genealogy is grounded in um, what i call the politics of connection which is um a lot about race uh, and a lot about um, how people perceive opportunity in the 18th century But it's also about the way that British American ideas about lineage and about genealogical relationships um, are embedded in uh, in the law, in Protestant religious practices, and of course in government and conceptions of government, um, whether monarchy or actually beyond monarchy, and how that is distinctly British American. That is that um, French uh, genealogical practices in the 18th century look quite different or Spanish or or any other, but it is about the particularity of um, British American genealogical culture as much as it is about how um, powerfully foundational this genealogical culture was. Uh, Why do you think this culture is distinctly British? Well, it is, um, uh, I would say there are three three, um, kind of fundamental pillars of British American genealogical culture. One is about law, so it's about uh, the British common law and the way that it is rooted in a particular, um, that it is so rooted in property and particularly in patrilineal inheritance. Um, So uh, anyone 
I think who looks at the law in this period understands just how much work one anybody in that period would have to do to sort of get around uh, the requirements of patrilineal um, inheritance law. Um, you know, coverture exceptions and separate separate property agreements and so on and so forth. Um, but nonetheless, the law um, is fundamentally uh, civil law is fundamentally about property, and property law is fundamentally about how you pass it on. If you look at even even agreeing that Blackstone isn't you know doesn't stand for British or British American law, let's just use him as a shorthand. And you look at Blackstone's writings, and you see that Blackstone begins his um, publication career at, when he's teaching law by writing about how you understand uh, property inheritance, and he publishes extensively on how you trace genealogical relationships. If you look, he's got a famous image that's called the Table of Descents, which um, begins with publications in the 1750s and then go on in all of Blackstone's publications, including the, the commentary. So the law is one, and that's a very distinctly British law, right? I mean, French and Spanish law, for example, which have different kinds of distribution of property look different. So it's law. It's also uh, religious practice, and in this, um, you know, not to say there isn't some diversity of British uh, uh, religious practice in the 18th century, and certainly there is in British America, but nonetheless, Protestantism is rooted in British America, whether we think about um, uh, colonies, crown colonies, which require um, the presence of the Anglican Church, or you think about um, uh, the colonies that are in New England that are founded as fundamentally um, uh, uh, Puritan colonies or congregational colonies. Protestantism is a lot about genealogy. The Bible itself is so much about genealogy. I mean, the Old Testament, we could kind of say, well, the Old Testament, you know, you begin by reading a lot about begat. Think about how many times the word begat begins, uh, you know, uh, sentences in um, or appears in sentences in the Old Testament. And, you know, that just the point about the patriarchs of the Old Testament is, of course, that they're establishing lineages. And in the New Testament, of course, Jesus's lineage um, from the house of David is a critically important feature. So genealogy in, in a kind of biblical theological sense, but also in a practical sense, churches are responsible for recording family relationships, birth, marriage, and death recordation before, um, well, for in Britain, um, before the establishment of the, of the record office in, um, in the 19th century, it's churches that are required to keep that information. So it's the law, it's Protestant religion, which practices, um, has, a, has a, a kind of biblical background, theological background in genealogy, and then also practices, including birthright membership too. Um, so uh, law, religion, and then of course, governance monarchical governance, which emphasizes the significance um, of lineage and which pervades not only thinking about the legitimacy of political rule, um, and we can argue about that, that is, okay, so do people really, you know, there is a, in the, the long 18th century is a period where people are looking for other sources of uh, legitimacy for political rule, but monarchy doesn't go away, nor does the kind of popular um, interest in investment in um, the authority of lineage as a kind of um, indicator of uh, legitimate rule. Um, and I trace that, all of these, kind of across the long 18th century in British America to look at, for example, my, my um, penultimate chapter is about the uh, interest of the American so-called founding fathers in genealogy and in how they um, invest in ideas about uh, genealogy and the legitimacy of political 
I'm interested in sort of breaking down each of these aspects a bit more. How did genealogy, in terms of its influence on law, um, how, how does that carry through to past um, American independence? Sure. Well, um, so part of the reason I'm so interested in, in the kind of the period as a whole is because you can think about how the imposition of British law and, and British ideas about property inheritance um, are so pervasive and how they come to be pervasive. So one example, and here um, I'm just going to refer to the work of um, Anne-Marie Plain, who's done some excellent work on um, Native American communities in New England. And she looked closely, and other scholars have, have done some similar work, but looked closely at, at how Native American communities are under pressure to adopt British ideas and practices of uh, inheriting real property in order to protect their um, ability to survive in particular um, uh, geographical territories. And we see that like throughout the period that the pressure to conform to, to adapt to, or to strategically use British ideas about, um, about property are uh, become essential. So we see that it's not just uh, uh, European descended or British American people in British America who are using these British ideas of, of property law but that other people have to become kind of bought into that system in a sense um, in order to, um, to navigate. Uh, but then beyond the American Revolution, uh, you know, British common law is not, um, is not transformed really um, in the period after the revolution. And in particular, property law is not fully upended. People often point to um, the eradication of entail, for example, um, in American property law as an example of how American law becomes democratized after the revolution. Um, and I am sure all of those who are listening to this will understand the implications of entail, but let me just say for, um, particularly for any American audiences for whom entail seems like a kind of arcane subject, entail is the ability of um, someone who is to, to determine in their will that their real property will become entailed or will descend um, in a male line um, from uh, father to son to grandson and so on, with perhaps some deviation according to law and some provisions. But this is, you know, very famously in Jane Austen's novels, this is always how young women become uh, disinherited because their father's estates are entailed, and so they are, you know, out of out of out of funds and out of resources. Um, but in and entail was used in the British colonies, and there's some interesting work that shows the extent to which entail had wrapped up, for example, um, property in Virginia. But there are two points about this. One, um, there's a kind of, uh, I think it's worth um, reconsidering actually just how much property was um, was tied up in entail. It is the case considers Virginia in particular. But the primary point is that property um, we can think about how deeply invested the law is in genealogy just by looking at what happens if somebody dies without a will. And what happens when somebody dies without a will is that the state goes in and says, okay, we're going to give it to, do they give it to the community? No, of course not. They give it to the next of kin. And that follows particular kinds of regulations. X should go to uh, male descendants, female, you know, whatever. And it follows a particular pattern. You know, if there are no surviving children, then it goes to, you know, if there are no surviving children and grandchildren, then it goes to collateral kin and so on. There's a whole complex schema for that. But the law does never says, you know, unless those unless kin cannot be located, they don't say 
it goes back to the community. Don't, don't die without a will, die without telling us what to do with your property. We're just going to give it, you know, back to for the good of the, the world. Um, and I think that point that the state remains deeply invested in genealogy um, as a means for um, passing property um, from one generation to the next is what's actually significant about the way that American property law does not change in the wake of the revolution. Why isn't there this concept of giving property back to the community? Oh gosh, well, that would be um, a different book or a different couple of books, I think. <laughs> um, you know, but the kind of the deeply rooted notion that property should go to heirs is, of course, you can look at, I mean, there, there are plenty of contemporary debates in American society right now about um, how much, um, you know, tax-free um, uh, descendants can inherit, you know, should descendants be able to inherit tax-free $5 million, $10 million, $20 million, you know, the whole kit, $100 million. Um, but those, those, that idea that what one owns should go to one's heirs is a very, very powerful um, idea. And the, the power of that idea is part of why I'm pointing to the way that genealogy, while, you know, an affective practice, by which I mean um, a practice of tracing family relationships that has deep emotional content and meaning, is also an instrumental practice. So you mentioned earlier um, this issue of race and, for example, drawing uh, Indigenous communities or forcing upon them these legal systems regarding inheritance. What was sort of the role of genealogy in shaping perceptions of race? Well, the, um, the most significant um, and uh, impactful, all right, let me, let me erase impactful, that's such a terrible word, <laughs> the, most, um, the most consequential, let's go with that, the most consequential implications of law and genealogy um, in terms of race is um, is the Partis Doctrine adopted in Virginia and then across British America, which is, which uh, which meant that the children of enslaved women would be automatically enslaved themselves. This fundamental aspect of British American property law shaped the lives and experiences of everyone in British America, most profoundly enslaved people and their families. Um, so that's, that's uh, the most significant. And what's so startling about it, and Jennifer Morgan, um, whose work on the Partis Doctrine is the most significant, and I would direct listeners to uh, her essay in Small Acts of two years ago, I believe, um, and her forthcoming book. Um, but uh, you know, I don't think we can even, I don't even know how we ever talk about early American history without pointing to this fundamental fact that British law was patrilineal and then British law in America became matrilineal in this one strategically cruel instance. That's a, that's a really interesting point about law becoming matrilineal in this, in this one strategic instance. To what extent was that about race and to what extent was it was it about gender? How did those two aspects sort of play into each other? There's so much good um, good work on on gender and race um, and uh, in slavery and in politics in British America. You know, I always begin with Kathleen Brown's book, Good Wives, Nasty Wenches and Anxious Patriarchs um, from 1996, published by the Omohundro Institute, um, which talks about how gender and race um, are mutually constitutive um, and how we can't really understand 
um, ideas about race without thinking about ideas about gender and how we can't understand conversely gender without without race. Um, and you know, there's a lot of dense scholarship on this question of how do we understand why uh, powerful men instrumentalized uh, matrilineal uh, descent for their own investment in property. Um, and you know, some deep uh, work, so Winthrop Jordan, for example, his White Over Black talks about the deep culture of race in uh, British and European societies well before uh, colonization. And others have looked very, I'm thinking about Tony Parent's book, others have looked very closely at specifically the 17th century to say, look, these guys knew exactly what they were doing. They were um, instrumentalizing racism um, to create um, enslaved people as their property. Um, but the impact is, um, is inarguable. The impact we don't need to interpret. The impact is completely clear, which is that over generations, millions of people were enslaved because of this law of matrilineal descent. And over these years, millions of enslaved women knew that they were giving birth to their children who would be enslaved. And that's just extraordinary. And as I said, I don't know how we begin early American history discussions without that fundamental point. We can't. To what extent is there a connection between genealogy and race and the idea of religion that you brought up earlier, sort of the role of Protestantism? Well, you know, it's very interesting because um, there's a lot of discussion, particularly towards the end of the 18th century, about how and why um, individuals who are enslaving um, other individuals um, should recognize that baptism should guarantee freedom. And a lot of intense discussion about, um, you know, can a Christian be enslaved? And uh, you will not be startled to know, because of course we already do know <laughs> that. Uh, but that's that question was settled in the negative. That is that uh, slaveholders rationalized to themselves the continued enslavement of Christian people who were already enslaved. Um, so, by one reckoning, uh, the status as a Christian uh, was a birthright, um, and we can see the transition in a lot of Protestant denominations. Um, so in the established church, for example, in the Anglican church, your parents are Anglican, you're born into the church, you're baptized into the church, you are understood to be a member of that church. That's a, a birthright. We can see even in um, radical denominations like Quakerism, which comes to have a, a, a form of birthright membership, or you know, one can go on. Um, so birthright membership um, is a form of genealogical association, affiliation, network, and connection. Um, slavery also has a birthright. Um, and yet these two birthrights, when they come into conflict, what, um, what power, the people in power, in power determine is that slavery and the status of enslaved um, will trump the status of Christianity. So you mentioned the politics politics of connection um, and in this period in Britain with the existence of the aristocracy, clearly like the private and public connections were very closely linked. Uh, to what extent was that replicated in colonial America? Well, um, in the colonies, it's not as dense. Um, you know, first of all, these are much smaller places. 
um, when you look at even the largest of British American cities, and you know Philadelphia isn't you know thirty some thousand people at the time of independence, um, and you know London is just so um, it's just on a, a you know a universally different scale of size, and the aristocracy is so dense in Britain by comparison um, to um, to what exists among the elite of uh, in the British colonies. Nonetheless. What you do see is some parallel strategies. That is that um, you see that, uh, let's just take uh, those people we might call the found, so-called founding fathers, uh, gentlemen who participated um, in, the, um, in, the con in the conventions declaring independence and then in the Constitutional Convention, um, first presidents and so on. And um, all of them were very, very interested in not only knowing and understanding and documenting, their family relationships, but also um, had pretty regularly made sure that by marriage, the same strategy that the aristocracy in Britain pursued, that by marriage they were making connections um, to other people who, to whom, for whom, with whom they would uh, be advantaged. Um, that's not to say that people always made marriages just out of sheer um, calculation, cold calculation, um, but simply to note that marrying, um, you know, there's just an awful lot of advice literature around at this time too, that marrying was um, a very, this was a really consequential decision. Um, and who one married determined a lot about the course of your life. And you needed to think about what advantages that person could bring to you. And people did. How did this politics of connection and I guess specifically the issue of marriage, um, how did that affect women's lives? Well, as in as in Britain, um, you know, women can women uh, can find uh, a great deal of power within marriage when they bring to the marriage um, property. Um, we see women who uh, who own property and who exercise um, their status as property owners through, for example, demanding separate um, separate agreements so that their property rights are protected even when they're married. So even under coverture, their property rights are are protected. Um, we see that women understand um, what they bring to a family in terms of perhaps a background or lineage. Um, you know, uh, it's interesting that, you know, I can see um, political figures um, drawing on and using and understanding the value of their mother's family connections. Um, uh, Jefferson is one of those. John Adams is another. They both understand that their mother's family connections were deeply important to their own um, kind of building future. Um, so, uh, so women, women bring a, a kind of sense of familial authority and uh, familiar resources to a marriage. Um, that said, you know, the system is meant to deliver property from men to men. The system is meant to deliver the resources, the collective resources of a family from men to men. And so in that system, women who are, who find advantage are are not the regular they are the they are the exception how did this system of of connection evolve as the colony's relationship with british evolved i'm not sure that we can um that we can say that there are ways um that the politics of connection um were necessarily tracking or or diverged um, given the political relationship with Britain, either, you know, let's say the, the wars, the wars of empire, or then and ultimately the 
the war of independence. What I will say is that the same, um, this, those same genealogical foundations that I referenced, um, uh, law, religion, and, and politics, that are, they're British American, but they're British at their roots. And it means that there is a kind of fluency of understanding about how important genealogy is um, on all sides, which means that um, when British people are talking about the significance of lineage, Americans tend to understand that. And when Americans are exercising their genealogical relationships, they know that there is a kind of um, resonance um, of that in the British context. Now, having said that, um, you know, there's a lot of joshing around, um, a lot of satire around pretensions to aristocracy um, among British Americans. But that's true in Britain, too. And that's true throughout the period. One might think that all of a sudden after independence, Americans get snarky about, you know, aristocrats with, you know, or, or wannabe aristocrats putting on airs. But actually, you can find that same thing in the late 17th and early 18th century, and you can find it on both sides of the Atlantic. So it's not a strikingly American thing to start to get anti-aristocratic or anti-family um, connections in the post-revolutionary period. That is clear. That, that, and I think that swims against our expectation of Americans as developing a kind of entirely uh, meritocratic kind of culture or meritocratic um, language. I want to move on a bit to talk about some of your early work. So you've really see written um, a lot on the term colonial America, for example, with your project of uh, vast early America. So how do, how is scholarship on this idea of, of colonial America and American vastness sort of developed in recent years? So vast early America was really just a, uh, an effort by me to describe what I have seen over the last decades as um, early American scholars um, having moved much more quickly away from um, uh, an, an, not entirely, but a near exclusive focus on the British colonies in uh, Northland, North, uh, uh, mainland North America towards a, a focus on a much wider perspective to understanding a kind of much more fully continental perspective as well, of course, if it's an Atlantic perspective as seeing the Caribbean as fully knitted into um, early America and so on. You know, and this is this is simply my describing um, what other people really have been doing. I mean, I, I often point to, uh, uh, in particular, an essay that, um, that Claudia Sant published in the William and Mary Quarterly, um, where he assessed um, the representation of different regions of uh, the North American continent as they appeared in articles in the journal, and uh, and then he did this by a kind of um, uh, geographic representation um, proportional and what he, and what you can see is that the North American continent looks really weird because so much was focused on the East Coast so it looks like this kind of little scrap of seaweed hanging on a giant beach ball of uh, the East Coast and very little published on the West or anywhere else um, but that has that has first of all that's changed and it's changing um, we see a much more robust literature um, for example on the center of the continent on uh, the French middle of North America, for example, from Louisiana up through up through Quebec, much greater um, focus on uh, the Southwest and West. It's not it's not proportionate by any means, but I think the way the way we now conceptualize early America is just much more geographically vast. And it's also true that to say vast is also to understand 
different methods and approaches, which are just much more inclusive of different kinds of methodologies, of understanding early America um, as, uh, as, having, as being uh, just as deeply about uh, Native America and um, the history of uh, slavery as it is about the growth of British American uh, constitutional institutions, which would become the foundations of the American government. So in short, vast early America is a kind of a conceptual framework um, that for me describes what has happened in this really vibrant and exciting field of inquiry over the last decades. How is pursuing all these different lines of inquiry and different methodology, methodology sort of put study of British colonial America into perspective? Um, well, I think what it does is it shows you that you have to put it into perspective. That is that if you're going to work on, as I do, in fact, British America, um, you have to see it as one piece of early American history. You can't assume that it is the early American history. You have to understand it in the context of these other, uh, these other forms of inquiry. I think um, I teach a graduate seminar on vast early America and uh, my graduate students in the seminar often walk away saying, what is it? And, and it's too big. It's too much. How are we possibly supposed to know? And uh, my answer to them is, that's right. That is part of the point, too, is that this is an enormous field. And after decades of scholarly output, it's a field that one can only really begin to conceptualize and frame. And understanding how little you know is actually the first step in knowledge. So. Uh, I guess for those of us who study British America, it's understanding that um, that British America um, has to be seen within this wider context. In your work on British America, how have you seen um, sort of legal systems or social systems in conversation with non-British America? Well, uh, you know, there's a very robust literature on, on legal regimes, on um, competing um, empires of law, for example, um, about um, Elijah Gould's work um, describing entangled empires where you know he and others who work on uh, on law have been looking at the way that for example in specific territories where you can see um, uh, different uh, imperial authorities claim territory and then lose territory claim territory lose territory a we know that they're never fully in control of these places of course they're barely in control of these places often but that we can see how these different legal regimes um, uh, ebb and flow. So, for example, in Louisiana, you know, French, Spanish, French, American, um, and you can see how uh, different law um, uh, moves. In Florida, for example, Spanish law, English law, um, to ask how they interact in the sense of how are they influencing one another. Um, that's, I think, a tougher question. I think what we can, because of the kinds of sources that we mostly use, and mostly we're looking at, um, at court regulations, uh, sorry, court records and statutory regulation. Um, and in that case, what we're seeing is the assertion of law uh, and then the efforts to implement that law. So mostly what we see is we see them in comparative perspective, kind of side by side in a sense. How did these repeated changes of of legal system affect the lives of, of people who weren't in positions of power? I think one of the most um, compelling um, 
kind of developments in early American scholarship, and actually this is true of wider um, kind of early modern world, is um, what some people call kind of the study of daily law practice, how it is that ordinary people are taking advantage of, um, and I mean that in the best sense, strategically using, instrumentalizing law for their own purposes. I think about uh, Michelle McKinley's book on on colonial uh, Lima and how enslaved individuals were understanding the workings of the law and were using that law to um, to attempt to free themselves and their, their families. Um, and there are, there are just many examples of this approach, but I think uh, when we look at how Spanish law, French law, English law um, being implemented on the ground is shaping the, the lives of ordinary people, one thing we can look at is how do they understand where their opportunities are and how they can use that law if the law is changing um, to try to work for their, you know, for their own and for their family's benefit. Um, so that's one, that's one way. You've also written on the wider perspective of Atlantic history, um, which is also another term that's quite open for interpretation. How does your work on early America fit into the wider scholarship of the Atlantic world? Well, um, so of course, you know, when you use a term, people then will will define it differently and and we use it differently. I would say that the Atlantic world fits into vast early America. I would say that vast early America is actually a kind of, you know, um, uh, an umbrella that incorporates Atlantic history. My colleague Fabricio Prado, who teaches um, our Atlantic history um, uh, graduate seminars and so on, would say, "Well, not so, maybe not so not so bad." Um, but but it is true that when, in my own mind anyway, vast early America really incorporates that wider Atlantic world, um, and that's in part because, you know, I think about what kinds of things we publish at the Omohundro Institute. We think about early American history as incorporating the related histories of the uh, West Coast of Europe and Africa, the Caribbean and South America, as well as the continent of North America. So that's a, you know, that's a very Atlantic and continental. That's what I think of as fast early America. Um, Those places that were in such intense um, kind of exchange um, in that, in that period that we, you know, we can't really um, uh, disaggregate them. I'm curious about has sort of the rise of identity politics or identity consciousness influenced the study of early American history? Mm. Um, yes, of course. Um, but I guess I would come back and say that I'm, I think what you're asking me is, um, well, you could be asking me two different things. You could be asking me as um, sort of since the 1960s and like the civil rights movement and the um, kind of a diversifying, modestly diversifying profession. Do we see a different kind of focus? Um, or you could be asking me about a kind of post 1990s, which is when we typically associate that kind of identity politics term. Um, but either way, I, I think what I would say is that um, you know the the identity of historians who are uh, practicing in the field has always influenced the kinds of work they're doing. In other words, identity politics I think has always um, been a part of historical practice, and that's not to say that historical practice is somehow tainted or is somehow um, you know illegitimate because um, the historians who are doing the work are doing it from the perspective of being a feminist or being a civil rights activist or you know having an investment in thinking about you know um, uh, non-binary gender identity or something like that. It's simply to say that 
people's own perspectives, of course, shape um, how they see and interpret the evidence of the past. It also drives them to uncover different kinds of evidence. And that, you know, that influences the community as a whole. So, you know, when I think about, for example, the incredible work of particularly black women historians working on slavery studies and the kinds of work they've done to unearth the relationship of gender and sexuality to the experience and the phenomenon, the larger institutional phenomenon of Atlantic slavery. It's extraordinary. I think about this really wonderful um, essay of Sasha Turner's about maternal grief um, and enslaved women um, and thinking about maternal grief, although we have so little traditional evidence of it, but the, um, the, uh, the extraordinary impact and the necessity of incorporating that into our historical reckoning. Um, that's really important. But at the same time, you know, that work hasn't, that work hasn't just changed historical perspectives for black women historians. It means that all historians now who are working on slavery are thinking about these issues of, for example, sexuality, gender, and maternity when they think about, um, when they think about slavery. So you mentioned a couple of times the Omohundra Institute, um, of which you're the director. It focuses on the history and culture of North America from around 1450 to 1820, which is quite a vast time span, 370 years in which the continent was colonized and then various independence movements um, happened or started happening. So how do you kind of deal with ideas of continuity and change through this very long time span? Well, um, and don't forget the related histories of Europe and Africa and, and so on. That is, it is a capacious, um, it is a capacious field. I think that that capaciousness is one reason why the early American field has been so dynamic and has been, um, I would argue, in American history in particular, so methodologically sophisticated um, and has made, I think, important contributions. Um, how do we deal with continuity and change? Well, I mean, this is an enormous field with you know many 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 scholars working in it all of whom would answer that question quite differently um some you know i i have a a, a colleague and, and friend at the omohundro institute uh, paul Mapp, is also my colleague in the history department at william and mary who likes to say that you know um change over time you know we either do that or we're out of business like change over time is what historians do and i say no <laughs> there are so many things that um that we need to attend to that don't have to do with change, that have to do with continuity. I think about Judith Bennett's great book, um, History Matters, about, um, about feminist practice and about how traditional history and historiography focused on things that do sort of change, like economics and maybe political regimes, um, but fail to account for the deep continuities in the structures of life, um, including things like gender inequity um, and race and so on. In other words, I think that historians need to deal with continuity as much as we deal with change. On the subject of continuity, to what extent did the experiences of women or family life change in, in this period? Or how does knowing that they didn't change maybe alter our perspective? I think what's more important, so this would be a great, a, a great case of um, why continuity and change aren't even necessarily the axes um, they, they are the axes that we have that we traditionally talk about in history, but I think they're not necessarily the axes that always serve us best. Um, in this case, I would say uh, for the experiences of women, I would say what's really important is to understand just how um, varied are women's experiences. 
um, across race and class, geographical situation, mortality, um, but most profoundly um, race and socioeconomic um, situation. That's what's really powerful is not, it's much harder to say women collectively situation changed from 1450 to 1800 in mainland North America um, than it is to say, um, you know, the experience of native women in North America from 1450 to 1820 under, you know, just dramatic changes um, and not necessarily as women, but as native American people. Um, and similarly, the situation of uh, enslaved um, African and African American women. Um, so I think it's important, just as, just as I was sort of pushing back against change and saying, wow, continuity is really important too. I think it's also important not to get caught in the change continuity axis um, because it can distract us. I mean, the thing about history, it's such a great and powerful discipline. It's amazing. I, no question, I think it's just an extraordinary way to understand humanity, um, but it's also true that it's a discipline that is um, created in the 19th century, and it has 19th century concerns at its core, which means that it is driven by traditional interests. Yes, I know Herodotus and Thucydides were writing history. Too. Yes, I'm, I'm just saying that the discipline, you know, um, really has this kind of 19th century orientation, and that means focusing on traditional things like economics or um, politics. Um, and those are the ones that um, that we not that those aren't important. They are. They are super important. But those are not history of the past. Those are history the traditional discipline. And the harder we drive towards history of the past and an analytical conceptualization of it, um, the better we do. We started by talking about the codification of things like genealogy in legal systems. How did that affect the lives of women? Well, let me answer. Um, I'm going to interpret the first part of your question as being about genealogical recordation, if you don't mind, um, because I think recordation is how genealogy becomes um, institutionalized. That is that families, um, you know, have their own family uh, recollections, that families have their own ways of remembering their relationships. But when uh, family relationships are institutionalized, First of all, those, both those reflections and those family productions of memory resonance um, connection and our access to those changes. So for example, um, when you see manumission laws uh, develop in, in British America um, and you begin to see, um, you begin to see uh, court cases of people who are suing for their freedom, their recollections, their oral testimony of their family relationships, and sometimes records of uh, kept by um, enslavers come into the court record. And that's how we know and how we see relationships that were originally maybe only kept as oral um, recollection. So we see an enslaved woman um, bringing in, first of all, testifying herself to her uh, maternal ancestry. Um, so here's an example. Um, sorry, I was just assuming there a little bit of knowledge, but the um, but uh, enslaved people could sue for their freedom if they could argue that they had a native maternal ancestor. So 
you see people suing for freedom on the basis of having a, a maternal ancestor who was Native American. And they will come in and they will provide testimony. My mother, my grandmother, my great-grandmother was this person. And they'll bring in community support with other, someone else coming in and saying, yes, I knew that person. And she always said her grandmother was, you know, and so on. And so what we get in the court record is this recollection and this evidence of what had been um, maybe only um, an oral testimony, though, of course, we don't know. There may have been a material, likely not textual, but there may have been a material memory, too, maybe some small object of memory. Um, but it also then comes to um, into the institutional record, and it comes to structure as we go forward, that kind of genealogical um, memory. So genealogy is, um, as I said at the outset, it is both this kind of emotive, um, pers very personal memory and, um, and reflection on the meaning of connection, but is also an instrumental and institutionalized practice. So you've mentioned a couple times using legal sources, uh, court records, and these types of things. What I'm curious about is what these sources can tell us about non-legal... The uh, affective quality. Uh, I always call it the affective quality, and people are like, I need a better word for that. Yeah. Well, I guess what it tells me, when I see in the court record that someone has um, a vivid memory of their grandmother, for example, um, and I see that they say, my mother told me, or I remember when... Um, what that tells me, unless I'm going to be super cynical and say, oh, yeah, they just made up that story, but I, you know, I, I'm not going to be that. Um, what it tells me is that that was a meaningful, that was meaningful to them. Um, and that was meaningful to the person who shared that with them. And then that was deeply known enough in the community that they can bring in um, corroborating um, accounts. And that, you know, that's when I, I have plenty of completely gorgeous material evidence, primarily from middle class and some elite British Americans who have created family records in text, kind of elusive scrap that shows me from a non-elite person um, from whom I have very little other information, but that, that reiterates that same point, that family connection is very meaningful. Um, you know, that I think is, is quite important. Now, to be clear, you know, family connection is not always a positive thing, right? I mean, family can, and, and in the case of someone who is suing for their freedom, um, you know, that family connection uh, may not have been a positive thing. So we could take the very famous case of Thomas Jefferson's children um, and Sally Hemings's children. Um, you know, their, those children's relationship to, uh, to Thomas Jefferson was, um, to say the least, a, a vexed one, you know, certainly a vexed inheritance. But there are many reasons why family connections can be problematic. They can be violent. They can be painful. They can be non-existent. Um, and my point is not to say that those family connections are always positive, only to say that they are meaningful. You mentioned very briefly uh, material evidence. I'm curious about how did these political and legal dynamics manifest in it? Do we see evidence of that, material evidence of that? Um, so the material evidence of family connection is actually pretty extensive, and it sometimes gets a little dizzying. Um, so there is, um, I would say, there's a highly disproportionate um, quantity of my research objects dedicated to British Americans' use of heraldry 
and armorial devices on various objects. And, you know, in the book, it appears a little bit here and a little bit there, but oh, there's a, there's an absolute ton of it, you know, and there are specialists who work on, you know, armorial devices engraved on silver, for example. There are certain Bostonian silversmiths who were, like Paul Revere, but, but others, um, who were very skilled in creating uh, family crests on objects of silver, which became marriage gifts, for example. Um, and putting those family crests on a, on a gift at, at a wedding um, is certainly a very obvious example of cementing a family connection at a, you know, in a, for a kind of family moment with a material object that carries a great deal of monetary and cultural um, value. Um, but there are, you know, there are others as well, things like um, the way that people passed um, when they died, passed on um, meaningful objects to to their loved ones um, with that, that they expected would be passed on from there. So I see, for example, in my, my first book was about, well, actually, second, but anyway, um, uh, my book on Not All Wives talks about uh, women who are unmarried, and in particular for women who never married, um, their use of their wills to pass on property to other unmarried women was quite striking to their nieces, for example, or to friends, but also, but very often to to, um, to nieces, maybe nieces who shared their name, for example. Um, so, uh, you know, rings, clothing, furniture, other objects. Laurel Thatcher Ulrich has a really wonderful piece called Hannah Barnard's Cupboard, which she published about 16, 18 years ago now, which is about a, um, a piece of furniture which was passed um, through the maternal line of multiple generations of women that has this woman, Hannah Barnard's name, kind of carved into it, and then it descends um, through women um, many generations. So there, there are lots of ways that we can see uh, material objects carrying the significance of family connection uh, throughout British America. So speaking of inheritance, I want to wrap up by asking about how these ideas of inheritance, um, material or otherwise, have carried down through to the present day America. Well, uh, you know, we still have intestate laws um, that will direct one's property to next of kin. I think, you know, there's uh, so, you know, I think uh, that's a that's a highly uh, relevant fact that we still expect that property will go to next of kin. Uh, there are lots of ways to argue about the significance of family connection, um, you know, and how in the world of DNA, in the world where um, chosen families families made in all kinds of different ways is just 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 much richer and more diverse world of family um, and yet there are these ways in which those structural imperatives for the early modern world are still with us I think another another point is um, just the popularity of genealogy um, one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book is because genealogy is typically seen as a kind of hobby as a kind of benign, um, popular cultural phenomenon and, you know, starts in the 19th century and it's just a kind of hobbyist domesticated activity, which really blows up in the 20th century as online activity and, and so on and so forth. And part of my point in writing this book is, first of all, it doesn't start then. It's, you know, it's, it's consistent presence to that it has these very particular um, dimensions in the case that I'm arguing British American um, that it's not the same everywhere. It's quite different in, in different places and different times. I think any of us could say 
um, you know, we can imagine, for example, the instrumental use of genealogy by by the Nazi regime, for example. That is, you know, a clear case to us where there is a very specific conception of genealogy and an instrumental use of it. I'm not comparing British American use. Um, I'm just simply saying that there are very there are specifics. It's not the same everywhere, and it's not. You know, it doesn't just start in the 19th century. And then lastly, that it's not just a hobby, that it is a, a practice that's really embedded in structures. Um, and that I, you know, I want to demonstrate this for the period of my particular expertise. That actually leads me to one more question. The historiography of genealogy, has genealogy been taken seriously? So genealogy has not been um, extensively studied. There are a small number of books um, uh, Francois Bay uh, wrote a book um, uh, called The Family Tree about kind of the popularization of American genealogy. And he he um, talks about a couple of examples of genealogy in the 18th century. Mostly he's interested in the 19th and 20th century genealogical societies and popularization. He sees it. I, he's a wonderful scholar, but we, you know, we see this practice very differently. Um, but then Maria Elena Martinez wrote a really wonderful book called Genealogical Fictions. Um, about uh, the use of genealogy in Spanish America and the use of um, genealogical narratives to shape understandings and even uses of race. Um, and there's a, there are a wonderful scholar who's worked on uh, on 18th century China actually. But there, and I've served on a couple dissertation committees now. But it's not a it's not a robust literature. I've pretty much told you right now. Um, there, uh, Honor Sachs, who um, is is writing a wonderful book that uses genealogy as a piece of her focus. Um, I know um, Alex uh, Walsham is doing a kind of larger project on kind of inheritances. There's, I mean, there are other there are other related projects, but but the historiography is not intense or, or dense. Um, so, so for a long, maybe maybe I needed to wait. You know, it's taken me a long time to write this book. Maybe I needed to, you know, sort of get to this point in the literature where um, when I was first working on this, people would sort of look at me and say, "You're working on genealogy? What? You're working on your family? No, that's not what I'm working on." But it it's sort of starting to make more sense to people now, finally. Thank you so much for speaking with me. It's been a real privilege. Pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to On History, a podcast from the Oxford University History Society. We hope you enjoyed the insights of this term's podcast series, and we hope you will join us for future events.